Coming to you from New York City. This week and every week, it's the Ben Kissel Show. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Ben Kissel, as always, joined by Mike Coscarelli. Thanks for being here, Mike. Hello, everybody. All right. I'm honored to have today's guest uh, with me, Jimmy Fela. Thanks wow. for being here, Jimmy. Well, what a good get by you guys. Congratulations on that. And uh, <laughs> No, really. Thanks for having me, man. It's great to see you, buddy. It's great to it's see great. you, too. This is a big deal. It is. Uh, it is. To some people. The equivalent of, of Tupac and Biggie yeah. having a face-to-face sit-down. Well, if you want to give them some backstory. Right, right. So uh, Jimmy is a, he's an amazing comedian. He's the author of a uh, fantastic book. What's the name of the book? Follow That Car, um, A Cabbie's Guide to Conquering Fears, Achieving Dreams, and yes. Finding a Public Restroom. And if you like, <laughs> and if you like reading at a third-grade level, this is your Super Bowl. Not only this do I like reading at a third grade level, it's literally all that I can do, <laughs> which is good. I could have used that public bathroom last night. I had a couple of beers. I recorded Red Eye uh, over there at Fox News, and I slammed about 10 beers at a bar called O'Brien's right afterwards. Oh, yeah. I got on the subway, uh, forgot to go to the bathroom before I got on the subway, and oh, I had to hop out two stops boy. before. And uh, thankfully, there was a large SUV that I was <laughs> able to make an outhouse. Well, you're the first guy I've ever heard of that gets off the subway to to go to the bathroom. I had to. I was about to pop. <laughs> no, everybody was... I know just stays on and does it. I, 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 <laughs> what, yeah. what, what line are you on? I mean, I ride the one line. That doesn't mm-hmm. happen on the one. Nobody's getting off to go to the bathroom. If anything, they're getting on to go to the bathroom. Right, right, right. One's yeah. in bad shape. I could have used your uh, your okay. outhouse uh, or your uh, your restroom uh, tips, though, I'm sure. <laughs> that, no doubt. And, of course, Jimmy is also, he's a regular on uh, the Fox Business Show, Kennedy. Uh, you is. also do Red Eye. You're amazingly talented oh, and extremely buddy. funny. There's a guy on Twitter. And he's attempting to start a feud between Jimmy and myself. And uh, the problem is uh, nobody knows us. We're not relevant enough for this man's efforts. There's a fine gentleman who I think is a very funny guy out in Milwaukee who whenever one of us makes an appearance on a show, Mm -hmm. which between the two of us, we're probably doing something every week. So, you know, every other day, basically, he's sending out a group tweet to you and me calling one of us an asshole on behalf of the other. I mean, it's unbelievable. I actually really enjoy it. I think it's funny. I just wish you and I could afford him a bigger platform to showcase right. his talents on. It's it's bigger than you and me now. I'm now rooting for this guy with the 31 <laughs> Twitter followers because he's a great. He's like his. He's like the Don King of Twitter. He is. He's he made is. a great match, but it it's, it hasn't worked. I mean, we're still pals, right? And it's, and it's nice. It's nice to see again. You know, yes. comedy goes. You see people a lot. You know, you'll, you'll see somebody every night for three weeks, mm-hmm. then not see him for seven years. Right. But they were right down the block the whole seven years uh-huh. comedy's like you just find circles and roll it's wolf packy things go on it's that's nice right. to see you it is nice to see Good you as around. well so the feud is real we hate one another and it's gonna get <laughs> to it's gonna become a real blood sport very very soon there's no doubt about that one of the two two unsolved murders right 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 um so i did a little bit of research though on you jimmy i was oh. doing a google man i'll do it sometimes i go google crazy Wait, so this is about the dateline thing the Dateline, no, oh, to, yeah, to catch, a fella. <laughs> to catch a it's fella. It's to catch a fella. It's it's me stealing cookies when my wife doesn't want me eating after 10 o'clock. <laughs> right, 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 no, right. You were getting cookies, sorry. That's what that Dateline show should be about, to catch a predator. It really should be a uh, more of a public announcement uh, about diabetes. I mean, oh, the what? amount of cookies that those people love. Oh, man. It's crazy. The the pedophiles, that's the one thing about To Catch a Predator that I think we officially learned. Pedophiles love sweets. They they just beeline for the cookies. 
I don't, I, I don't want to be the guy who comes on your show and just works his act into the conversation. Mm-hmm. But I always talk about fat shaming, and I say, like, you know, we can't make fun of fat people because it's it's based in compassion. Right. I say the whole shaming movement's based in compassion, but there's this reality that some of the things we've traditionally made fun of are bad. And I say pedophilia. Mm-hmm. Like, in 20 years, we have the type of society now that in 20 years would say you can't make fun of that pedophile. You're pedophile shaming. Right, right, and right. And I right. then say, I say, I'm not saying fat people and pedophiles are the same, but to be fair, they both carry a lot of candy. Then that's, to your thesis, that's yes. the point. You're right. That's what we've learned from To Catch a mm-hmm. Predator. Now, I'm really rethinking my own life because right. I'm very pro-cookie. Okay. Well, I would stay away from children, stay away from playgrounds. <laughs> Jimmy Fallon, the 500-foot <laughs> kid. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Yeah. Pedophiles love sweets. It's a crazy thing. But uh, <laughs> who really, knew? Really great to see him. And is, uh, you yeah. did some research. So I did some research on you. You got a great book out there. And now you were in a show. You were on a show called America's Got Talent. Wow. And uh, you did a bit. You had a, you had a little bit of a bit there. Mm-hmm. And it was extremely controversial. And Mel B., I believe she's Scary Spice. Scary Spice. Scary Spice. No, no, no. It's fall. She's Pumpkin Spice. Now. She's Pumpkin Spice. Oh, we're doing shtick. Listen to us. Jimmy Fallon is on fire. <laughs> Just people are changing stations like a wild man right now. Go ahead. He's heating up. <laughs> Go ahead. Mel B thought that your bit was extremely racist. They cut it from the show. Thank God for somebody such as Howard Stern, and I believe there was another judge on there that really enjoyed you. Oh, the man, fans Phil. said, bring back Fela. We need Fela. What was this bit? What, what did you say it that was, was an- perceived as extremely controversial, oh, dare I say racist, by Scary Spice? <laughs> by the way, the only slightly not white Spice Girl, and they named her Scary, so that in itself was racist. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, Hammerstein Ballroom uh, for the America, America's Got Talent auditions, mm-hmm. which just to give you some backstory on on how re- how much reality is in that reality TV. Yeah, it's like your seventh audition. Like you are, you start out auditioning in a room one on one for a producer. If they like you, they kick you downstairs to like a holding area. Then you perform for seven producers. If they like you, mm-hmm. you send a video to the judges with their endorsement, and then you audition. Okay, live at the Hammerstein Ballroom, which still isn't live at that point because there's a lot of comics that get yesed but still get cut from the show okay but the audience doesn't see it so i'm basically at that event at the hammerstein ballroom which is it's it's you know seats like a few thousand people right it's a legit you know if you're a guy that was driving a cab a week ago Mm -hmm. it's actually a pretty interesting gig it's a beautiful ballroom it fits hundreds and hundreds of people really quick question what's more uncomfortable performing in front of many people or seven producers i feel like the seven producers eyeballing you must be one of the most uncomfortable places positions to be in as a performer see if you care the producers are the harder one Right. But I don't think you wind up 33 driving a cab because you've applied yourself in life. <laughs> I feel like yeah. I already I punted on caring somewhere around like my 23rd birthday. It right. didn't have it in me to care one way or the other. But the right. Mel B-, but- B thing, I was emotionally invested in. It's packed house. Howard right. Stern's there. It's a big deal to me. Uh, Heidi Klum is there. Oh. Looks like a million bucks. Uh, Howie Mandel, Mel B. And uh, the way it works is you're only doing comedy for like a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. You know, a minute and a half, two minutes. Um, what she actually freaked out on uh, was a premise. So let me give you the backstory. I'm basically doing two minutes about driving a cab. Okay. So I'm opening by saying I'm a New York City cab driver. Nah, thanks for that. You know what I mean? Because it gets nothing, and I made a joke about that. The first joke I make is I say it's, it's hard being a cab driver in New York City because everybody's crazy. They get in. They know they're never going to see you again, so they dump all their conspiracy theories on you, and you just have to take it because you're trapped in the car. Right. And the joke I tell is I say I had a woman who told me the president was in Al-Qaeda. She's like, you know, the president's in Al-Qaeda, right? And I said, ma'am, I drive a cab. I know most of Al-Qaeda. 
<laughs> right. But they're in. She's not offended. Nobody's offended. I've told an Al-Qaeda joke. I'm off to the races. Right. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy Fallon. I told an Al-Qaeda joke, and I'm off to the races. That's, that's the Brilliant. slogan we're going. Make America yeah. great again. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There it is. So, uh, actually, no, I'd get the Carson vote for that. But uh, let's let's move forward here. <laughs> um, the setup was black people are the best people to pick up in a cab. That's okay. the setup. I say black people are the best people to pick up in a cab because black people give you cliffhanger directions. Okay. And the premise is that you'd never know where you're going if you have a black passenger because they don't give you an address when they get in. They mm. just make a demand. You know, make a left right here. Like, mm. wait, what? And then go straight. Stop, stop. You know, like that. So that's the bit. But I don't get to do that. I just say black people are the best people to pick up in a cab, and she slams the buzzer. And everyone starts right. booing. And I just assume that they're mad at me because right. I introduced race into this family environment. So I finish the bit under a cloud of booze and just assume I'm done with because it's the type of buzzer. It really is like a, a, an organ rattling buzzer. It's right. a big, it's a very aggressive buzzer and everybody boos. Uh, Stern silences the crowd himself. Does like the quarterback line of scrimmage. Right. Third and short arm wave. Yeah. Omaha. <laughs> Stern Omaha's the crowd. Everybody's sitting still now and Howard has their attention. And uh, I don't know what's coming my way, but he says, uh, he gets right in and he goes, Mel, he goes, the hardest thing to do on this show is comedy. You're a disgrace to judging. It was the first time on the show. He's like, you're a disgrace to judging. You shouldn't be judging comedy. This is why I was against this. And everybody cheers. So he gives it to her and she goes, well, I just don't understand why you have to bring race into this. And I just landed a lucky shot. I go, I feel like everyone in this theater has passed race in this day and age except you. Right. And everyone was like, whoa! Nice. And they clapped and screamed and all that stuff. Right. And then uh, Howard said two or three more things back and forth arguing with her about how she didn't even hear the joke. So to judge the joke without, you know, at the point of the setup was a wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, they took a vote. The crowd's very pro New York because you're in New York. You're doing this every man cab driving thing. You right. know, what I mean? it's like a, it's kind of like a Rudy thing. And uh, they got, they, they took a vote and voted me through to Vegas. But what happened was, because it was such an incident, um, I was on stage for 16 minutes. Okay, these things are supposed to be two minutes, one minute for voting, next act. Right, it's cattle call. You know, right, it's very efficient. But I was on stage for 16 minutes. So that night, it wound up on TMZ Live. Like I wound up on TMZ Live. Uh, there's a show on CBS called The Talk mm-hmm. that I was on the next day. And then Lisa Lampanelli, who I was opening up for here and there at the time, went on Stern and brought it up. Yeah. Like, now, America didn't even know it happened, mm-hmm. you know, because it wasn't going to air for another three months. Right. But at that point, it had made just enough news that it was getting, like, coverage. I was getting that that relevant media push for, like, a day where, like, right. the New York Post is calling you and they want to know the story. Um, and what happened? So, go ahead. So, um, so you have this situation, and how did you feel once the media push came? I mean, obviously, like we were uh, discussing before the show, celebrity it comes and goes; it flames out in the matter of in a matter of minutes mm-hmm. uh, nowadays. Were you uh, ever uncomfortable with the idea? Were you completely comfortable in the premise of the bit? Yeah, so that you could go to bat for it and be like, "This yeah, is not absolutely. a racist joke." Absolutely, a thousand and five percent. And the crowd was way behind it. Right. I mean, I think having Stern say you're in the right, you feel better. Because yeah. he's kind of the arbiter of good taste and acceptability on that show. Right, he which is, is so though. bizarre. I mean, the man yeah. used to do the biggest stool competitions. Fart man. And, yeah. yeah, fart man. <laughs> fart man is now standards and practices. That's how, that's how far off that's, our country is That's where gotten. we are. Yeah. The woman shooting ping, pol- ping pong balls. The, right. the guy they were shooting them at is now America's judge. That's what he's called. <laughs> he's called America's judge, which is fine. Get behind it. But, I um, love it, yeah. Uh, whatchamacallit, what happened was because they thought it reflected negatively on her, Right. As a judge, they decided to cut it unbeknownst to me. Okay. So when I got to the Vegas round, um, 
the the Vegas auditions took place while the season was kicking off. Okay. And the producers come by and they tell you you've got to post this on Facebook, that on Facebook. You've got a, a very aggressive social media push to watch me on the show tonight. How much micromanagement do the producers put on you? We talked to a lot of guys uh, from Last Comic Standing uh-huh. and things like that. It's all a big sham. Everybody yeah. knows it. How much micromanaging was there? And did you feel as if you actually uh, lost any freedom? Oh yeah, a lot. I mean, in terms of the pro, in terms of competing on the show, yeah. In terms of your uh, artistic credibility, do you feel like they uh, they inhibited you in uh, in uh, ways that were harmful? Yeah, definitely. But only while I was on the show. I don't feel like I left there harmed. Right. I just felt like the actual competition aspect of it was configured in a way that didn't lend itself. Like when we went to Vegas, you perform in an empty room again. Right. So you go, it's just you and four judges in an empty room. And Mel B, of course, was one of these judges <laughs> once again. And then, and honestly, they had auditioned that many people that she didn't even know who I was. Right. Like, they were looking at you like, she really, I, you know when you're looking at, a, I don't know if you ever met a person with Alzheimer's, but they don't know who you are. Right. I've, she physically didn't know who I was. It was very, it was one of those. Yeah. And um, Sounds exactly like me, or uh, someone with Alzheimer's, or if you were looking at me last night at 2.30 <laughs> in the morning while I was screaming about the Pope at a bar, I alienated a couple, they left! I have no idea what happened. You walked. You walked a couple on I the Pope. I walked. The girl was so pretty. I forgot her name. I forgot everything they were doing. I just screamed about the Pope. Anyway, my eyes. I was gone. My brain wasn't there. Can I? Do, do you remember what your gripe with the Pope was? I don't like the new Pope. Okay. Well, I mean, the new Pope is. We can. We'll talk about it later. No, but I am bothered by the fact that we have a second string Pope. Yes. We have a backup Pope. It's it's unprecedented. I think we're blurring the lines too much in society now. I think some labels are supposed to stick, mm-hmm. and we're just supposed to run with it. Pope for life. Benedict's still alive. He's still the Pope. <laughs> I'm a Pope Benedict I'm, guy. The, the Vatican Nazi is not. Yeah, the Vatican's not supposed to have a depth chart. Exactly. You know I, mean? I don't know how I feel about this. But I'm, the point is, I'm with you. So anyway, so Mel, Mel B. B. Yeah. So she doesn't recognize you whatsoever. She has no idea that she nearly. Uh, she attempt. The the irony is, she wanted to ruin your career. Yeah, that because it would ruin your career. Right. That's that's what that's the eye opening moment of doing reality television is that you realize how far on the wrong end of supply and demand you are as a performer. Right. That they know they can audition 5,000 people a year. You're going to get one shot at this, and they really don't have any regard for how it goes for you because they know they have another 5,000 people coming up. Right. Like right now, if you're the guy winning America's Got Talent, whoever that guy happens to be, Mm -hmm. they are auditioning next week the new season. Right. So, like, it's such a finite shelf life in terms of your relevance Mm -hmm. in society. That uh, whether you do good or bad, it really doesn't brand you or stay with you for long. I mean, if you win it, it does. If you win it and sure. do well with it, it does. And if you milk it, if you really want to make it something, if you want to yes. identify yourself with the show. Yeah, if you want to do noon comedy shows in Pennsylvania for right. the next three years, you can make some money. Like, I know Taylor uh-huh. Williamson, he was on the year I was on. Yeah. He's doing daytime shows. I right. mean, he's also doing nighttime shows and grown-up shows, but the idea of doing daytime shows... I'm a grown-ass man. Yeah. Taylor Williamson, a very, very nice guy. Nice I've known man. him for years as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the idea of daytime Pennsylvania shows, I only perform for the Amish. <laughs> I just, I love the Amish. I can't get enough of, the Amish <laughs> crowds are crazy. He's doing an MTV Unplugged. Exactly. I'm doing an Unplugged comedy tour, bro. I do that stuff about driving a cab. They love me. Right. <laughs> right. I go to the Good and Plenty restaurant. So Mel B's plan to uh, derail your entire career, the mm. thing you were working so hard for, the show that was incredibly difficult to get on, you actually got on, mm-hmm. her her intention to derail everything completely backfired. Did you feel some vindication? Oh, the moment of being on stage 
with that many people screaming and cheering and booing her and cheering Stern and cheering me. Right. Like, that part was amazing. What was that initial reaction like when they, when they started to boo after she buzzed where you're like, oh, my God? I literally, literally felt the organ rattle. I'm like, wow, this is a great drinking story. Because <laughs> I thought, I really instinctively thought I was about to be called a monster racist in front of 3,000 people. Right. And I was like, all right, this this is it for you. This is, you do this for the rest of your life. You right. go places and explain that you're not racist for the mm. rest of your life because of her interpretation of a joke setup. Right. So I was glad to get out of that alive. But the actual yeah. moment, it was the Roman Coliseum. You're the only dude on the stage, and they were screaming. Like, Stern was screaming at Mel. Right. Heidi kind of stood her ground. Howie Mandel tried to be funny, yeah, which I is kind of the story of his life. Did he do the uh, rubber glove bit? <laughs> Howie Mandel tried to be funny. is extremely wealthy. And oh. if you go watch him in the 80s, he would do a rubber glove bit he put it on his head. He would blow it up with the oxygen coming from the, from his nose. Uh-huh. I mean, it was one of the most infuriating comedic bits in the history of comedy. <laughs> that was more offensive than any racist joke I've ever heard in my entire life. Anything I could have did. Anything. It's I could have crazy. My joke could have been black people are the best people to run over with a cab, and right. it would have been less offensive than Howie's act. I totally the fa- agree. The fact that Howie has made a hundred million dollars oh, with what he's doing, oh, unbearable. And, break uh, down. and really takes himself seriously. And gave me like a really constructive analysis of my character and my set. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, have you thought about like going to the doctor's <laughs> office? You know when they take off the gloves, ask if you can have them, and then bring them on stage. It, it kills. It kills. You know what he said to me? He's like, you have a very like marionette type of way. You're very animated when you talk. And everybody was like hoping to get he He landed that like there was a joke coming his way. And everybody was like, yeah, Howie, the grown-ups are talking. Right, like, we're right, doing right. This. We're having a race riot over here, Howie. You want to give us a minute? Oh, my God. I just want to rub so, him with a dirty cloth so he freaks out. <laughs> so I went to Vegas. He's a germaphobe. He's, that's, yeah, the, that's yeah. The, yeah, that's the thing. I went to Vegas, and what happened was the first episode was airing while I was in Vegas. They give you all the social media encouragement. You've got to post this on you know every social media forum you're on. Right. Watch the show. I'm on the first episode of America's Got Talent tonight. Now, unbeknownst to me, they had cut the Mel B set. Okay. So I wasn't on. You dig? I didn't know that. Promoted. Oh my God. Promoted, You're a jerk off now. I promoted, yeah. you know, the. I mean, you don't have that much. Three years ago, I didn't have that much to tell people anyway. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. I would have been promoting if I was doing a bar show, <laughs> let alone America's Eye. So I'm promoting. It's on this. It's a witty post. There's a picture. There's a thank you. It's there. And then the episode comes and goes, and I great pumpkin to my fan base. Because they all got into the pumpkin patch, but the Jimmy Fallon gray pumpkin never flew over. Oh, man. So while I was there, I wrote a letter to the producers asking off the show that I also posted on Facebook. I only did it to prove I was on the show. Right. Because I felt like everyone thought I lied about being on the show. Right. I mean, some people had seen the CBS stuff and heard the, the Stern stuff, but the majority of the people didn't. Yeah. So I basically asked off the show to just to prove I was on the show. And the set never aired. Oh, that's so funny. But it came up on Stern like two more times because of Lampanelli. Shout out to her. She did a good thing. Yep. And uh, crazy. It's mythical. But you know what's so interesting? And I want to talk to you about your experiences with the cab. Mm. People who bring up race are people who uh, have experienced a lot of racial diversity in their life, which is so Mm. ironic. And that's why middle America and many white people in this country get so sensitive when you discuss race, as opposed to other groups who freely can, uh, you know, talk and have the conversation because uh, they live a more diverse life. It's always the um, alienated white populations who project their ideals 
onto um, onto uh, you know entertainers and things like that and project their uh, own racism, ironically enough, mm-hmm. onto a person and they believe that they must be bigoted because of yeah. they have a haircut such as yourself and a complexion such as you Love and it. an occupation such as being a cab driver. Yeah, you hear my accent in the cab. <laughs> right. I got a lot of home team tips. Go ahead. Let's have finish finish what you're saying. So I'll- what I'm asking is, uh, did you feel like th- th- there was a uh, hypocrisy when you were on stage? You say the word black as a white dude. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that reaction would have been so negative if you were uh, of a different race, of a different ethnicity, or just a not. different, uh, you know, looking not. dude? The way it is now is I think the lines are so, so blurred that nobody knows what's offensive. Right. So you can say certain buzzwords and immediately get slapped with a label because yeah. we're in such a rush to label things. Why? Because we want to be self-righteous mm-hmm. and know we're on the wrong side of this bad entity. And I think that's like in Mel B's case, she saw an opportunity for some street cred mm-hmm. by being like, oh, here's some low-hanging fruit. We got a racist on the show. Right, I'll right, be right, the right. guy that outed the racist, and we're, here we, we're, away we go. I think she saw currency in doing it right? and then didn't wait the joke out long enough. So she took, to quote Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you never open your mouth until you know what the shot is. Right. Mel B didn't know what the shot is. She didn't hear the bit. So scary the, Spice scary again. Scary Spice. They only called her Scary Spice because she wasn't blonde. <laughs> That's so why she was funny. scary spice. I mean, the idea that you're racist, by definition, a cab driver has an open door policy to anybody who wants to get in. And there's anyone, not- the only color that matters is green. You'll never Money. work a more ethnically diverse job right. than driving a cab. My garage is on 21st and 7th here in the city. Okay. They're literally like 418 ethnicities. Mm-hmm. It's crazy what's going on down there. Right. There are, um, but, it, but really, like, I mean, from, from as basic as, you know, male Caucasian, white guys, black guys, too. There are people down there with loincloths. I mean, right. there are people that learned to drive in a coup attempt three days ago. Yeah. Like, there is every, like, facet of societal evolution is represented down there in that garage. And uh, what's funny is they all bond over ethnic humor. Right. Because that, those, those stereotypes are the only things that kind of traveled across, you know, boundaries. Yeah. So the black dudes make fun of the Spanish dudes in the locker room all day. They make fun of the Jewish guys, you know, they make fun of the owners all day, you know, yeah. back and forth all day. It's pretty, it's like a, it's it's like an old school friars roast right. down there, which right. is so, so if, like if you grew up in that environment uh, where you actually have, uh, you know, interacted with, so, you know, such a broad group of people, accepted them, been accepted by them, right. you kind of feel like impenetrable to someone calling you racist. Right. And it kind of gives you, I think if you're vulnerable about that sort of thing, you might buy into someone calling you racist, mm-hmm. or you might not be sure, but you know how you feel. Right. You know what I mean? I just think the world has changed in a way where these labels, it's a really weird thing, but people will slap shit on you, like, excuse me, but instantly. Right. Instantly. And it's like, I didn't even have on my hood that night. Right, right, I wasn't right. even wearing the hood. It was in the trunk. Yeah, know? of course. Well, that's where you got to keep it. Yeah, I mean, they literally, they slapped it on you at, uh, during a premise. Mel B, that is. Mel, when you uh, so when you were driving a cab, was there any uh, was there ever a situation? How do you choose to not pick up somebody? Because <laughs> I was on, I was on the street the other night, and I'm I'm a huge monster. I'm six foot seven. Uh, I was wearing my Joseph A. Bank though. I looked pretty good. Come on, you're still scary looking though. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. I'm waving down multiple cabs. No one's picking me up. I really? think they thought I was going to deflate their tires or something. I have no idea. <laughs> what, what, was, what would be somebody, as a tip, I need a, a tip as a civilian. What should I do when I'm trying to get a cab? Well, I want to say this because this matters. Because people would always say to me, like, do you racially profile and stuff like that? But I think the reality is you don't. Because when you're driving a cab full time, you want to die. 
you want to die. <laughs> like, if anything, I would pass you're you. You're driving through Yes, I would pass you because you didn't look dangerous enough. Like, right. that would be my grounds for passing you. <laughs> but you want to know what the truth is? No, I think you look drunk. If they're yeah. passing you up, it's because you look drunk. Because you know when you're drunk, yet you don't have self-awareness. Like, have you ever met a drunk guy at, outside a bar fight uh-huh. who's convinced he's winning a fight where they're physically toe-tagging his body? Like, he's <laughs> he's on the wrong end. He's he's lost every round on every judge's card. But he's like, right. oh, I got this. Like me with the Pope last night. Yes. I thought I was crushing and then just left. There's a level of intoxication where you're not self-aware as to how you're physically coming off to people. Right. And you probably look very animated or you might be swaying. Uh-huh. You're probably doing something where your posture is betraying, you know, your physical state. Right, right, and right. And they don't want you to throw up in their cab. Worst uh, cab experience you ever had? Wow. I picked up a woman out here. I mean, the worst is tough. I had a guy pull out a gun that wanted me to smoke weed. He wanted you to smoke weed at gunpoint? No, it wasn't. Listen. Uh, the way it went down was the guy thought I was driving a guy. I was dropping a guy off of the El Martinique, which is like one of those motels that's actually an apartment. Okay. In a remote area of Brooklyn. He fucked a girl. Excuse me. God, should I be cursing? Oh, it I'm doesn't so matter. Sorry. No, no, it doesn't matter. Yeah, sort of. He uh, fornicated with a gal in the uh, back of my cab on a day shift on the way to the El Martinique Hotel, which is in Jamaica, Queens. But it's not a real hotel. Uh-huh. It's really one of those places that's like a controversial like, Airbnb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a very friendly Airbnb, if you will. <laughs> Staff is extremely friendly. Uh-huh. And uh, they 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 had sex in the back of my car. And so uh, when they when they start having sex in the back of your car, are you uh, looking in the mirror, or you're like eyes forward, eyes on the road? This is what happens. I think I think the people. The, I think you listen to a lot more taxi sex than you watch. And the reason I say yeah. that is good-looking people have places they can go. Right, right, the right. The people who have sex in your cab, it's because it's their only place to have it. They're so they're so appreciative of the fact that they're getting the opportunity uh-huh. that they're going to have it in front of you. Uh-huh. And it's not generally as appetizing aesthetically as right. it might sound. So I think you listen to more than you watch. Yeah, it doesn't even work. But the gal gets on top of the dude? In this instance, she rode the dude. Okay. When it was over, and uh, right by the Midtown Tunnel, uh-huh. uh, he finished... Uh, yeah, and I. What listen, did that sound like? I know, I know. Go-go-go. No, it was that's a very. It was you know the one <laughs> the kind of well. That's so funny. Mine's the the money's on the dresser. <laughs> it's yeah. a catchphrase. Uh, <laughs> a catchphrase. Uh, the uh, what you called? He finished in an aggressive manner. The kind that ruins a porno for you. Oh my god! You know when you get the vocal guy in the porno. Yeah, dude, yeah, dude yeah, shut yeah. up! Like I don't. I, ah. Oh my god! I I, I totally. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. I'm like I didn't need that. Stop but anyway, showboating. Yeah. He he then asked me as we pulled through the tunnel. He's like, he's like, how you doing up there, baby? I'm like, good. He's like, it's a big day. I'm like, what's going on? He goes, it's my last day smoking crack. Oh wow! And I was like, get out of here. And it was the woman sat up and she's like, don't listen to him. He promises me this all the time. And then she explained to him that he he'd never gotten to have a last day before. Like he'd quit five times. Oh okay. But he'd never quit under a last day premise. Oh. Which is like you go on a diet. By pigging out the day before. Right. So I'm going to smoke so much crack on Sunday that I'm never going to want to smoke it again on Monday, Mm -hmm. was the thesis. I think it's the last day he's going to be alive. This is how we are looking at here. And uh, they had a duffel bag full of goodies, and uh, like halfway out to the El Martinique, he got it in his head that I was one of those vice cops driving a taxi, which happened to me a lot in my cab. Really? Yeah, people either thought it was cash cab or that you were cop, because there is a big undercover program of cops and taxis. I don't know if you know that. I did not know that. Yeah, they turn out, uh, I don't don't know why I'm giving you this insider trading information, but Yeah. yeah, they turn out right in this area in Hell's Kitchen. Do they, they actually look, take you to your destination, or is it always just down to the canal street? They're usually street? just making busts and stuff like that. But if you're a criminal, you wouldn't know one way that you wouldn't want to chance it. Right. So he started asking me if I was a cop and got into like a very aggressive line of questioning. 
I didn't pull a gun out, but I heard him go into his bag, and I heard what I I would swear was a gun. Yeah, and didn't like the look on his face. And he was smoking crack, but he didn't have crack in his bag. He had weed, and he wanted me to smoke it. And I did smoke it. Just took a hit of it. Well, you were driving. No, we were there. We were in the parking lot at the okay. El Martinique. You ever pull into a parking lot um, that has that air, those airport limo buses? They're mm-hmm. vans. Mm-hmm. It's like airport group van, but they're done, like meaning their windows are broken and the tires are banged out. Right. Like it's the end. You Basically, you're on the set of like a Chuck Norris movie. So, you know? Yeah, right. So they boned in the car. Then, if, then you uh, you thought he was pulling out a gun. What was your level of uh, what, what was your level of um, anxiety at that point? Wow. I, get, I feel like it's pretty high, right? I mean, you hear about taxi drivers getting murdered all the time, popped in the back of the head, execution style, as if they you know stole some Mexican drug lord's um, you know <laughs> cash or uh, or a stash. It's such a shame. Like when they shoot up a livery cab driver because you're get they're getting thirty eight dollars. Right. It's uh, it is a shame. I mean, in that moment. I don't think you really have an emotional response. I think I think you're so locked in mm-hmm. to playing out the situation that I think when it was over and he got out of the car, I think I was probably more alive than I'd ever been before. Hmm. But I think in the moment, I think you're pretty locked in. So it was, he was sort of your jigsaw yeah. from the film Saw, <laughs> which the premise is the jigsaw puts you through hell and then you come out a better and we, person. And we just turned this into a Key and Peele sketch because it's what if Jigsaw was black. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'd love to smoke Peele. a bunch of crack and yeah. uh, have sex in the back of cabs. But uh, pretty freaked out when it was over. In the moment, I was pretty locked into just you know persevering and getting through it and telling him, like, yo, I'm not a cop, I'll, you know, bullshit but uh, right you know what they got to do i think the cab the whole car is wrong the cars are wrong mm. you got to have the passengers in the front oh and you got to drive from the back you got to keep an eye on these people you do it like it's one of those amusement park trams that's that right takes you to your car i think that's a mike you like the idea i was not paying attention thank you that's mike best on fire that's the taxi that's the real taxi tomorrow that's right the backseat cabbie yeah it was freaky so i'd put that up there as like a one or one a worst experience yeah, pretty, I mean that's pretty bad. And ever, ever uh, have a gal come into your cab and uh, try to hit on you, anything like that? No, but I had a gal beat off. Really, she beat off. Fascinating. Yes, I'm without even. Now. Yes, Mike, you're done. <laughs> hey! you're, you're on timeout. Like, I picked up a girl on uh, Central Park South, okay. swanky area, and a real like cinematic thing. I was pretty new to cab driving. Attractive gal, really good looking. Okay. Central Park South, Thirty Third Street. Uh huh. It's high society women over there. Mm-hmm. No, those are good women. And uh, <laughs> it was one of those things where like she ran out of the building hailing me. Okay. Like almost like a slow mo thing. Like she ran out, put the hand up. Like her hair was like bouncing in rhythm with the tires spinning. It was very cinematic. Did she look drunk at all? She looked great. It was daytime. Okay. She didn't look anything like you. There was no. <laughs> she wasn't arguing with a person who wasn't there. Oh, okay. Good, <laughs> there, were, good. there was no shadow boxing. Uh huh. Yeah, maybe if you stopped shadow boxing. But uh, no, she got into the cab and she stood. She told me she was in town on business. She was staying at a Holiday Inn in Jersey. Yeah. She must have been coming out of like a high stakes pitch meeting or something because she was stimulated by something. I wasn't in the car long enough for it to be me. Right. But as we were talking, I could feel her voice like dropping an octave and kind of slowing down. And it was interesting. And I only knew she was beating it because I saw it in the mirror. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. And like I went into again, it's like a self-preservation mode. I didn't want to end it. So rather than trying to escalate the situation. I just wanted to, you know, leave good enough alone. Right, Well enough alone. And I just watched it out, and I drove her to Penn from 33rd Central Park South. She went back to her hotel to do God knows what. At any point did she tell you what she was beating her bean to? No, No, but she did ask me. She's like, so what do you do besides this? You have a really good energy. 
And I'm like, well, you know, I'm trying to do comedy and stuff, you know, like I do some firehouses, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, basically not trying to give her anything that'll walk the room. Right, right, you know? right, right. She's like, do you go away a lot? Do you get a lot of hotels and stuff? I'm like, yeah, sometimes they put you up, but like, you know, mostly an MC on the road at this point, so i got to drive back <laughs> both nights. It's like, well, wouldn't that be great if you could get a hotel and I could come by? She said that. And I was like, yeah, that, that would be awesome. Like, wow. You know, but but I already knew what was going on. Right. It's also early enough in like a marriage and fatherhood yeah. that I'm actually trying to get out of it. You know what I mean? I don't right. know that I get out of that situation in this 10 years late. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. But As, uh, a, uh, as a white, um, very fluent in the English language cab driver, did you feel like you were the ultimate minority? Oh, definitely. That like That's a funny thing. People would get in and because I was exactly what you described me as yeah. they just assumed i resented my work environment which was right. not true which is what i was trying to say earlier taxi garage is amazing mm. like if any any place you can walk in and people are firing racial jokes at each other without right. any any concern or regard it's like oh you get it these people don't take anything seriously they're not racist right they're just having fun it's a fun environment i loved it but i've had so many people get in my cab and be like oh i'm glad you're not one of them towel heads and give me yeah. money and I'd be like, I'm glad I'm not one of them. Tell this is a $50 tip. Thank God. You know what I mean? I, you know, I would take it. And uh, that went on a lot. Like yeah. I don't, I don't mean, I don't mean five times in three years. I mean like you know, probably a hundred, a lot. Yeah. Other thing I found out is during like I was driving during the Obama election cycle of 08. Black and white racism is mom and pop racism. It's nothing. Well, explain uh, mom and pop racism. What do you meaning, mean by that? Meaning we're a very small percentage of the racism in the world right the black and white racism that we're obsessed with in this country yes like if you get into individual dialects of asia mm -hmm. you know you get into ind individuals you know latino ethnic groups how much dominicans and puerto ricans the shit they say about you in your cab i know uh my oh. friend used to work uh in the kitchens and Dominicans and Mexicans, they despise each Hate other. Hate each other. It's, it's, it's and, uh, fierce, though. Yeah, it's it's very insane. I mean, they <laughs> literally will uh, will murder one another. They would just get in my cab and just go. I didn't know. It was interesting. But even like black on black connotations, um, I didn't know that light skinned meant something else. Okay. Then, like that, there was a perception of you being a certain class of person if you had light skin as opposed to dark skin. So when I didn't know that in two thousand eight, when Obama was getting elected, obviously. Um, well, he was attempting to get elected. Uh, the first black president. Were, did you hear any negative comments coming from uh, black people uh, proclaiming that he wasn't black enough? <laughs> I had one. Uh, I had one white woman go off. Oh, okay. Uh, but no, in terms of black people what? saying he's not black enough, the only thing I really heard about that was I did hear like there was people that would get in and give me like this Bilderberg theory of how he was just becoming president because he wasn't black enough. Like it was helping him. Oh, okay. I was being told it was helping him that mm. he wasn't black enough because it was the kind of black that would appease that Bilderberg faction, that Illuminati right. theory that they're electing the president. Uh, but I had a white woman get in and uh, Penn Station, 8th Avenue, in the morning, gets right in the back of my cab and she goes, I normally get in the cab at 5.50 a.m., but today it took till 6 because the black people are dragging their asses now because they're in the White House. And I was like, what? I was like, oh, good morning. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. she goes, and 6 o'clock in the morning for that kind of racism. And I, and she, I, so I wanted to say, I'm like, give me till 11 till I've been cut off a few times. I'm, I'm biased against everyone <laughs> on the planet. Don't open with that, you know. Uh, but she actually goes, and I went up to a woman on the train, and I said, he might be your president, honey, but he's not ours. And I was like, wow, it's going to be a real harmonious eight years. This is going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. But yeah. I didn't get a lot of that. I didn't get a lot of white on black at all. But I got a lot of black on black, and I got a lot of uh, Asian... Yeah. Middle Eastern. Do you um 
and I apologize. I'm discussing so much about the cab stuff. No, but I want to ask you about branding. Uh, do you ever regret uh, branding yourself as uh, the um, everyday cab driver? Because sometimes you can get lost in, uh, you know, what like what happened with uh, Larry the Cable Guy, obviously. Um, <laughs> it Larry the Cable him. Guy, his name was, what, I believe his last, like I think Ned his name was Dana something. White yeah. or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Uh, that might be the UFC president. Well, it <laughs> definitely is. But um, Larry the Cable Guy was just a character that he used to close out a uh, character-filled uh, one-hour performance with. Yes. And the directors were like, or the, his management was like, you're Larry the Cable Guy. Uh, you're going to stop. He was a vegan. Uh-huh. He's like, you're going to start eating meat, very similar to how um, Andy Kaufman used to was a vegan, and then when he was Tony Clifton, he ate more sausage than I can ever dream of. <laughs> Do you ever feel as if you've branded yourself into a corner as the cab driver um, persona? I, I feel like no, because I don't feel like people preface me that way. Right. Like, um... I think it's something I'll bring up and have fun with, but like I just taped an hour special, and it's it's you know it's probably a minute and a half of the hour, right? Because it's not something I spend a lot of time on. I think I actually I'm glad I did it for the sake of writing a book. Yeah, but then I think you kind of cycle back away from it after the fact and just try to go be a dude. I right. would regret it. I and I do mean this. I would regret it if I was really running around trying to be a Yakov Smirnoff right. or Larry the Cable Guy or anything like that, because, yes, it could age really bad. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I do like having is I, I do like when it comes up in conversation, especially if I'm doing, like, pundit work on TV. Yeah. Because I think it's a good jump off to where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Like, it gives you, uh, you know, they know you have, like, a little bit more of a street sensibility. It's mm-hmm. a little bit less refined than everybody else's. And it lowers the shit out of expectations. Yeah. When they hear community college graduate, former New York City cab driver, yeah. you're off the hook for any dumb thing you say. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Really, though. So every right. once in a while, you do make the smartest comment of the day because it just fell in your lap, and then you're exceeding. And they're like, oh, that guy's great. Right, right, but right. But if you right. came on as a you know, senior Washington correspondent for the Daily Beast and said something smart, yeah. then it gives a shit. Isn't it shocking how dumb everybody is? Yeah. Who, who people perceive them to be intelligent. Oh. I mean, you know, we do these Fox News shows all the time. We're on with you know, the head contributors, senior editors. They're all morons. Yeah, hey, we're in the hunt. We're not embarrassing ourselves out there. You know, it's unbelievable. I never felt more intelligent in my life than hanging out with supposedly intelligent people. Well, what I think the advantage is for us is we have a base of operations, which is humor. Right. So we have the luxury of just finding, you know, reacting to this in a funny way mm. so we don't have to showcase our lack of intelligence on a subject. I mean, showcase lack of intelligence. It's so, I mean, to be smart is just, it seems to be more simple than ever. Uh, Yeah, it's. It's maybe a, it's because the the country has gone downhill that far. That maybe <laughs> maybe the the bar of intelligence has lowered itself to our standard now, or maybe we've excelled. I don't know. I don't know what the truth is. I think, but it's crazy. No, I do. I, it has been a very revealing process to be around these people and know that we can kind of hang, kind of hang, crush. I know we're doing good. Nonstop crush. I, I don't like to. I don't do that. I don't like to do that. I give you credit for doing that. I have this other thing going on where I can't know that I'm doing good at anything. I have like an abusive showbiz dad in my head. Oh, yeah. That yeah, keeps yeah. me. He's specifically Joe Jackson, though. He talks black. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, yeah. He's getting, you, he's getting laid in the back of your cab. You flubbed a syllable. And I'm like, I didn't mean it. I didn't, you know, and I have that. And it's, it's oh, helpful. Yeah. 
Oh, I'm a, I'm extremely harsh critic of myself, and I, it sounds like you are as well. But that is a specific trait to people who are going to be extremely successful. It's the individuals who were coddled their whole life, who never mm. had to be a cra- cab driver, who didn't get beat by their immigrant German father like myself. You know, it's those people who have no idea, uh, no idea that they're just regurgitating nonsense. Yes, the people that have been duped into thinking the world cares about you. Right. <laughs> no one special. Cares. Nobody special. You know, I say this to my friend all the time. Society is really becoming a gross thing to interact with mm. because we're now applauding everything. Right. Like, oh my God, you haven't bathed in five days. Upworthy posts. <laughs> she hasn't make, bathed in five days. They're not, they're bathe yeah. shaming me. Yeah. Someone oh, said yeah. I smelled bad. They're bathe shaming. Yeah. Oh, you're 718 pounds. Good for you. You're 708 now. We're walking well. around with, you know. Just it's a, it's a mess. I do like that my six hundred pound life show. I'm always encouraging them, oh, and whenever it. they lose the weight, I'm like, Ugh. there's nobody more pro fat than me. And yes, everybody has seen weight loss work against a person. We've all met a person who lost hundred pounds. And I lost one hundred and sixty pounds. Yeah. You I look, lost 160 pounds. My stomach is disgusting. I, I go on stage. I got a little bit about how it looks like Walter Matthau's face from Grumpy Your Old Men. People <laughs> love the joke. It is. They go crazy. But think about a guy like Al Roker. Are you going to tell me 1990s Al Roker wasn't better looking than alien Al Roker? Sometimes people wear weight well. Yes. Because you know agree. what it is? The weight gives them an energy and a presence. Mm-hmm. A little more likability. I agree. Keep eating, folks. The dieting thing's a sham, especially if you're a girl. I mean, that was that's girl-on-girl crime. And gay on girl crime. That's the fashion industry perpetuating the skinny myth. Guys really aren't looking for that. We're attracted no. to energy. Yeah. Every guy, you know, has fallen in love with the pretty fat girl. I don't sure. mean she's pretty fat. I mean she's pretty and she's fat. Right. But there's something about that energy that we're really into. And uh, I think you guys are being sold a false bag of goods. And if Ben and I are elected this year, mm-hmm. we're going to make America great again. I'll, well, no, make America fat again. Make That's America fat again. Make America fat still. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I think we're already there. Yeah, you I've know. been to Disney World with my kid. Right. You Whoa. were at Disney World. Your self-worth is over the moon when you leave Disney World. Yeah. It's fantastic. How, uh, how old's the kid? Lincoln Fail is six. Lincoln. Lincoln Fail, yeah, good kid. I love that name. Do you like it? I, 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 I like the name a lot. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, really? He got it because I lived in 102nd Street. He was going to go to black public school and get beat up a lot. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, you can't beat up Lincoln. No. That was actually a proactive move by me yeah. to try to save the kid a whooping. But no, obviously the president and the name I liked a lot too. Yeah. But uh, he's sixth, second grade. He can read. That matters. Amazing. Has he read your book? Would you <laughs> Would you allow him to read it? He's going to read it at some point. I know that's coming. Yeah. But there is like, there's a chapter in there that's about my wife's vibrator oh. that might be beyond him at this point. Right, right, right. But to give you an idea of just how well I'm doing as a parent, he does know the words the baby's got back. Nice. Uh, he has, a, he believes, me and Kennedy are working on this. He believes Sir Mix-a-Lot's coming to his birthday party. You never asked, know. Well, you, you know what I, I realized? I wouldn't know Sir Mix-a-Lot if I met him because I haven't seen him since that video. Well, he's another guy who lost a lot of weight. He did. Yes. And look what it did for his career. Well, I think he's a very successful know, producer. Doing it. He's very wealthy. Yeah. I know. But yeah. I'd kill to have him at my kid's birthday party. It would be amazing. He listens to the show, so I'm, I'm mentioning it, obviously. Yeah, of I'd course. to have him there. It would be great. Oh, Sir Mix-a-Lot's one of our largest fans. <laughs> yeah, he loves the He can't get enough of the stuff. <laughs> he likes Big Ben and he cannot lie. Yeah, he's a Kissel fanatic. Kissel fan. He's going crazy. Uh, good living. Yeah, it is, it is a good living. So, um... 
you so you had the kid you, when you had the kid you were still driving cab yes and so, and you were not struggling I hate the ter- struggling comedian no one's really you're you're just doing it you're just doing um, it did you feel when you had the kid like uh, well better start uh, getting a career that makes you know, money you, that's funny your kid really does help you yeah. you don't realize that as a single person. Kids make you so much more efficient with your time, right? you know, because it's not your own. So if you get a free hour, you know what you want to do with it, and you get it done. So, right. yes, a kid definitely makes you a lot more proactive in terms of getting out there and applying yourself because you realize you have, if, again, if you're a decent person, right? a kid helps you. A kid is, is a motivating force. And there's a lot of people who just keep living the way they did before the kid got there, and the kid's just now along for a very indulgent ride. Right, right, you right, know, right. You're still going to do drugs and drink and you know bang around. But no, I actually definitely think he helped me apply myself mm-hmm. to the extent that I can because I'm, I'm not even trying to be modest. Like I, I sometimes I can come off as being conversationally smart, mm-hmm. but I don't really think I'm working with that much. Like I, because you know when you spend a lot of time around yourself when you're alone and see how many dumb things you do a day. Right, right. Like right. I think I'm definitely trying to play a semi-intelligent person with some like wherewithal. Yeah, but yeah, I don't. I, I don't feel like this was a first round pick mentally. Like I don't feel <laughs> I feel like I was I was like a guy who played one double A ball but had a little bit of an upside. Yeah. Like you know those guys that 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 go to Ohio State but they played two years of community college ball before they got there to get their grades up. Right. And then I they, feel like I'm that guy. Like a baseball pitcher who's got a just forced to do the knuckleball. He's like <laughs> I, I throw a seventy five mile an hour fastball. Yeah. So uh I'm gonna ne- go with the knuckle, I think. Necessity's the mother of invention. Right, 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 but, right. Uh, yes, kids are really helpful. You should have a kid if you don't. You should have three. What was your favorite um, thing about the process of writing a book? I have a hard oh. time sitting down and writing because you don't get that immediate satisfaction. You like the stand-up. You like the audience validation or, or lack thereof. Yeah, you like Or even, that. you know, if you're on camera, you know, you got a crew laugh. You, you know get the works. crew laugh and it's you're great. doing great. Yeah, there's nothing like it. Um, no, I did love it. I loved the isolated element of it where yeah. you're just sitting on a couch eating Adderall and blasting music for 10 hours a day. <laughs> I actually consider it like one of the two best years of my life. I liked it. It's not for everybody, but I liked it. Yeah. I just liked it because of the size of the piece. Like you were only working on this one thing yeah. for a year, a year and a half, and spending so much time on it. And it was like such a continuous thought process to be immersed in for a year. Yeah. Like literally all, you know when you got like, whatever, whatever, whatever it is, if you have a big appearance, a big audition, a big set coming up, and mm-hmm. for like 72 hours, it's the only thought you have. Right. Well, I literally had that for like a year. Like, I was that locked in, and I enjoyed I liked that. It was, there was like a consistency to it that I got a kick out of. Right. Was there any Was there any uh, personal breakthroughs that you found through writing? I mean, as you sit there, you're alone. You're writing about yourself, which uh-huh. is, you know, the definition of uh, being an egomaniac. Oh, but you've got to do it because it's obviously going yeah. out to the populace, and they're going to read it and, uh, you know, um, take from it what they will and put that into their own lives. So it's not selfish. Was there any breakthrough that you had uh, when it came to just getting to know yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. I think when I was alone on the couch just doing all of the, that writing, I think it's very introspective in that because you're alone so much, it's a, it's like being in a cab. The downtime right. in a cab, you spend questioning everything you did to wind up being in a cab. You know, how did I get here and, you know, why? And I think when you're writing and you're writing the book and you're retracing, like, life experiences and stuff like that, you start to learn why you reacted to certain things the way you did. I sort think of a self-therapy va- session. Yes, I think your value system gets defined more sharply mm. when you spend time alone because you get what you want to do and don't want to do. It kind of, like, becomes more pronounced. What's an example? Um, I'm 38. Yeah. I don't really like to do anything. 
Right. Like, and I know that now. <laughs> like, staying home is amazing. Right, right, I right. don't need to be out till four in the morning every night. If someone tells me everyone's going to be there, like, that's the selling point to not go. Right, right, right. Everyone's going to be there to me means it has a long bathroom line. Uh-huh. I'm like, ah, that just sounds like a fucking man. I don't like everyone. You know what I mean? Right. And that I'm, is a, everyone, yeah, that is, that's a very old man statement. I like yeah, it. I'm with you. I don't want to be there. No, uh, I, I, I have come to find that I really like having a production model and like a routine. Mm. That's what I fell in love with writing a book is that you had a really sharply defined production model. Uh, you were waking up and going to bed at the same time all the time. Mm-hmm. And like, so even now, like yesterday I was like day drinking. Yeah. But it really wound up at the end of the day fitting into a template where I was home by 10 o'clock. Right. Because I wasn't doing spots and it was perfect. It seems like an interesting thing. Now, obviously, you must not have had this sort of desire for. Uh um, I guess consistency your entire uh-huh. life because there's nothing more inconsistent than driving a cab. Yeah, nothing. It's freaky. It's crazy. So having had a chance to do it, yeah. I was like, do you like it? And yes, I liked it. And yeah. I learned that from writing a book because I never would have had it. It's what you just described. When I was driving a cab, um, yeah, I was driving a cab. I really was doing stand-up full-time, just not on a level that anyone cared or mattered. Right. You know what I mean? And um, so I would drive 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then in between, I would eat and write and do spots. So I would right. usually get home at like 11 or 12, sleep like four hours and go back and do it again. Mm. But I was only doing it, I mean, I was doing a good, but when I started driving a cab, I was doing a good amount of colleges and shitty road work. Yeah. Firehouses, you know, regional one-nighter, stuff like that. Right. And uh, I was doing like enough of that to pay bills, but I always wanted to drive a cab. I had a seventh grade English teacher who told me he drove a cab. It was the most profound experience of his life. There was such a like diverse cross-pollination of people and backgrounds and stuff, and he said he learned a lot. So I just wanted hmm. to do it. Right. So that's I, so I, interesting I, because people often look at cab drivers as if they can't, they don't have any other options. No. Back then, it was a different job. It's like if you're in Europe, it's a good job. Right. It's actually considered a good job. You go to college for it, you make money. It's hmm. a different ball game. But uh, it was an indulgence at first because I had a kid on the way. We needed the money, so I needed to do something. Right. Um, but then six months into actually doing the gig, my wife lost her job and then I had to do the gig. Right. It's a different gig when you have to do it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It takes on a whole different psychology. And that was a war. Like there was a year and a half of doing it when I was also doing comedy that was just fucking hell. Yeah. You don't really want to sleep four hours a night. It might sound cool at first. It sounds like, like a nightmare. Yeah, I'm on a nonstop bender. A nonstop bender is cool <laughs> for like three days. Exactly. And it's fucking horrible. But uh, yeah. that was fun. Learned a lot. Kind of yeah. like this show. I feel like I, I feel like we've evolved a lot today. I think that we have. I think we have. All right. If we accomplished well, anything, I hope I discouraged someone from driving a cab. Don't you? You don't need to drive a cab. Well, I mean, I think you really encouraged him. It sounds like an extremely fun profession. You get to watch people have sex. You get offered weed. I mean, you might get shot in the back of the head, but you know, it happens. That'll happen. Um, let's see. So what what do you got coming up? You're going to be on Kennedy, I assume. Oh, I'm on. Ken- well, yeah. Today I'm on Kennedy on Fox at five. It's that Saturday episode. Awesome. Um, Tuesday I'm on Kennedy. Uh, Friday, I'm on Red Eye. Nice. And uh, we we don't get the panel together. We get a panel together. We got they're, to. But they're doing this thing now where I've been on with a lot of comics. Have you noticed that? Yeah. It used to be like expert, expert comic. Right. This is one thing Fox News doesn't get credit for that they deserve to get credit for. They are using more comedians than any channel in the history of television. I totally agree. More than Comedy Central by like a five to one margin. I am forever, I am forever grateful to Fox I love Fox. I will do whatever they want. No, they're, they're, I'm voting for Ben Carson. <laughs> if that's what they want. Just don't make I, yo, me vote for Ted Cruz, please. I, I was going to pander one step further and go, I'm writing in Roger Ailes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to out pander you, but no. 
Shout out yeah. to the Foxies. Yep, absolutely. Um, all right, and check out uh, check out Jimmy's book. Buy my book, man, and my special is going to air in the fall. I'm getting it back today. So I shot a special at Gotham August 20th. Awesome. I get it back today, and then they take it to network this week, and you find out what happens. Very could cool. Could be Showtime, could be Netflix. Folks, if I can achieve these <laughs> things, there is hope for you. There's a lot of hope for all of you. Yep, same here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. You can do whatever you want to do with this life. Just uh, you know, keep on with it. And uh, sometimes you got to sleep four hours for a year and a half and drive a cab. Got to fight okay. the ground war, folks. You got to. Sometimes you got to put boots on the ground. You can find Jimmy Fallon on Twitter. It's just Jimmy Fallon, right? At Jimmy Fallon. At Jimmy Fallon. You can find Mike Coscarelli on Twitter at Mike Coscarelli. Mike, how, and of course, listen to Mike's uh, great podcast, Social Villains. Mike, how is the podcast network coming along? It's going great. Very, very good. It sounds like it's all falling apart, huh? <laughs> I don't have any money. Ah, no, same here. Yeah. Great. Um, all right, so you can find me on Twitter at Ben Kissel, and uh, check out my other shows on Cave Comedy Radio, A Blinken's Top at The Last Podcast on the Left, and The Round Table of Gentlemen. And I think that'll do it. We'll talk to you soon. We'll Thanks so much for being this. here, Jimmy. You're the best, man. Thanks, buddy.